Psalm 95, starting at verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Oh, we just had that opportunity. We had that opportunity to sing and to shout and just to rejoice in God and what God has done and what God continues to do. We just had our prophecy update and see that things aren't falling apart. They're actually falling into place according to God's word. We're starting a new year and we're looking forward to what God has done, that he will continue to build upon what he's done in the past year, understanding that God is in control and all things are working together for his good. Well, it's for that that we worship him. We worship him because we have a proper perspective. We need to have a proper perspective based upon the word of God of who he is. Now, worship. Worship is probably the most abused, maybe second to false teachings, but probably one of the most abused anyway aspect of our Christian experience. So much of what is referred to as Christian worship in actuality is Christian entertainment. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but there are songs that aren't so much worshipful, worshipful, but they're more along the lines of Christian entertainment. We need to evaluate the songs and the words that we are singing and, and, and digest those through to our hearts and understand who it is that we are coming before and understand that am I truly offering him praise or am I seeking entertainment? Am I singing a song because it's got a good beat and you can dance to it? You know, what, what is the motivation that I have during this time, this half hour or so that we spend before service? And then what about the last song? Is that get it over with so I can go and partake of the hospitality? Or is it, you know, just thinking of going home and what am I going to do? Or is it truly a response to God's word? I was reading an article that was written, and I think it was the pastor, but it was this one particular church, and he said he kind of changed things around a little bit. They did two songs at the beginning, and they did four songs at the end. And his reasoning was is that worship was to be a response to God's word, and that just simply makes a lot of sense. There was a movement that started from within Calvary Chapels quite a long time ago, but it was not of Calvary Chapel. A man within our movement decided that worship did not have a prominent enough role within the church. He wanted to see a greater movement of the Spirit, not that that which is within itself is a bad thing, but he went about it a bad way. He broke off from Calvary Chapel and started his own movement that centered upon experiential worship and worship filters throughout the church in so many different areas. Well, what this resulted in were the seeds that were planted for the Holy Laughter movement. If you haven't heard about that, then that's probably a good thing. It regressed into something that was really bad and was definitely not of the Lord. But then we also have to examine our worship because there's the other side of the coin. There can be worship that can be mundane. There can be worship that's not really heartfelt. There can be worship that, again, is just mouthing the words, but not really singing the song unto the Lord. And again, we've got to examine every aspect, because, again, you can worship God wherever you're at. God is with you wherever you're at. You don't come here to be in the presence of God. God is in the, you're in God's presence no matter where you are, but it's as we come through those doors, we come to a higher awareness of the presence of God. And one of the main reasons that we do what we do and we do it consistently, I mean, we don't change things up too much, 
Sometimes you'll have two songs before the announcements. Sometimes you'll have three songs before the announcements, but not a whole lot more than that. But part of that reasoning is, is so you know what to expect when you're coming to church. And the reason that you need to know what to expect as you're coming to church so that you would prepare your heart, that you would be ready as you sat down, that you would be of the mindset of putting the worries and the concerns of your day behind you and realize it's not that I'm coming into the presence of God, but I'm entering into a higher awareness of God's presence. And when you have a higher awareness of God's presence, one of the things that should break forth, spring forth from you, is worship. It's just to sing out. Because again, we've been soiled by the world. But we also need to be reminded of the magnitude of the grace of God, the depths in which he has loved you, and the magnitude in how he has saved you. And when we're reminded of these things, it should result in some of the things that we will be talking about here tonight. Charles Spurgeon said, compare, he compared worship to the ringing of church bells. He said, you can ring the bells uncontrollably, and it's an irritating bunch of gibberish. Or you can ring the bells in such a way that you have the feeling that a funeral is taking place. Or they can be rung in such a way that fosters the desire to come worship the living God. John Stott said, true worship is the highest and noblest activity of which man, by the grace of God, is capable of. What greater thing? There's obedience, there's getting into God's word, there's fellowshipping, but the greatest is just simply worshiping, worshiping God. Because as you go through the Bible, when man comes face to face with God, where is he at? He, He prostrates himself. He's on his face. He's he's worshiping before the Lord. Come, let us worship or prostrate ourselves. Let us worship and bow down before our God. It's not that you have to get on the floor here, but you have to be of that mindset as we're starting service. It's not that buffer time between getting here and pastor coming up, but it's that time that, that I'm just worshiping him. And I'm opening my heart and preparing my heart for God's word. And then after the giving of God's word, our worship should be a response to that. And you see here, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. When was the last time in the body of Christ that you shouted joyfully? I mean, made a shout out to the Lord. And again, we should be hearing some shouting on that last song. Because again, it should be a response as as God meets you. And it's the blessing that we have in church. Because as I mentioned once before, where else can you come in and just sing out? Where else can you, I mean, other than the shower or other than your car. I mean, if you go to the mall and just start singing out, they're going to haul you off to the funny farm. There's just no really other places other than your private time that you're able to do that. And here it's not so much that you're able, it's expected. And and so we need to value this time. We need to take part in this time. This psalm, Psalm 95, once again, is part of the series of the theocratic psalms having to do with God's rule of the universe. As God is seated upon the throne, worship is how we crown him king within our hearts. 
There is no author listed here. Psalm 95 is an orphan psalm once again. But we are told of at least a contributor to this psalm because, again, we can compare Scripture with Scripture and get some insights. If you look down at verse 8, it says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David today, after a such long time, as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is in the form of a quote. And the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, and he attributes this psalm, or at least a portion of this psalm, to King David. So, using King David as an example, the first of the great king of kings of Israel, Saul lost his kingship and left in disgrace. But I look at David and how David was crowned or anointed king of Israel. There was, a, there was three of them. The first anointing of King David was anointing by Samuel, the prophet Samuel, on the Bethlehem farm of his father, Jesse. This was a secret crowning. It was just David, his father, and his brothers. Second was the anointing of David as king after the death of Saul by the men of Judah. They recognized the men of his own tribe, God's calling upon his life. This was a selective crowning. Third was the anointing of David as king by all the tribes of Israel. This was a sovereign crowning as he was crowned to be king over the whole nation Israel. And so if our worship of God is truly the recognizing of him as king, the crowning of God as the king of our lives, at least within our hearts, we can look at it as a threefold process as well. First, there is the private ceremony. This is where I must come to the knowledge of God and recognize him for who he is and what he has done in my life. Worship has to spring forth of recognizing God but even more than that, because the demons recognize God, but they don't worship him. But understanding the magnitude of what he has done in our lives. To realize how far apart I was set from him by my sins. And there's a price there that I couldn't pay. But God, because of the great love with which he had us, even yet while we were still sinners, he died upon the cross and he paid that price. Your worship should be a response to that. Your worship should be a response to the salvation that God has freely given you. Secondly, there is the corporate ceremony, if you will. This is as we, his people, come together and worship him together. The recognizing of the family that we have here in the body of Christ and the realization of, the, of, of just something special. Now, we had a special time this past Christmas. You know, in this very steps, we had the official Calvary Chapel, Ontario Children's Christmas Choir. And it was a joy, mostly because they're cute and the singing thing and all of that. But there's just something special about the power of a choir. And we're going to experience that in heaven. When the Apostle John got that picture uh, of heaven in Revelation chapter 5, there, there was just this singing out. The singing out from that choir, and it was just something that was powerful in that. And really, this is every opportunity that we have to gather together and to worship the Lord. Here at services, small groups, we start our small groups on Tuesday night with worship, night of worship and praise, just any time that we have that we're able to corporately worship the Lord. Then there's the public ceremony. 
This is where my manner of life as I am out in the world reflects the Lord as my king. It's the crowning of Jesus as my king through my life for all to see. Once again, it's living a life that is motivated by grace, inspired by love, because we are destined for eternity. And as we understand these things and and how big these things are, then you see that we'll worship in a manner that is great. But when we start taking these things for routine and for granite, I guarantee you, your worship is going to reflect that as well. So reflect back on just the past half hour or so, where is your worship? Well, where your worship is, is a reflection on where's your knowledge of God and your adoration and appreciation of who he is and what he has done. Now, I'm not saying anybody's backsliding. I'm not saying anybody's losing their salvation or anything over these things, but we can just so easily fall into a rut. What's the difference between a rut and a grave? Width and depth. It's pretty much the same, the only thing. And so we've got to make sure that we're fresh and we're vibrant. And the way to do that, continue in God's word, be obedient to the Lord, and recognize these times of worship as just truly that. Again, not the singing of the songs, but the worship of God. Psalm 95, we're going to break it into three stanzas. First, we have in verses 1 and 2, how to worship. Verses 3 through 7, why we worship. And verses 7 through 11, a warning to worship. All of this is prefaced with the knowledge of why we were created in the first place. We were created in the first place to worship God and to keep his commandments. We were placed on this planet for those purposes, to worship God and to keep his commandments. And as we do these things, we do well in the sight of God. As I worship God and as I love my God with all of my heart, soul, and mind, as I love my brothers and sisters, I'm fulfilling the will of God in my life. Many ways that we do that through many callings, but ultimately that's our purpose. And so again, I'll read in verses 1 and 2, how to worship. Come let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving, Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. There are so many ways to worship the Lord, but ultimately this one ingredient must be present at all times. We are to do so joyfully. Joyfully. It's not a time of mourning. We are to exhibit joy in our worship. Because again, joy is going to be an outward expression of the recognition of all that God has done. We are called to worship him with joy and enthusiasm because he is our immovable salvation or our rock. He is that which is sure and steadfast. It's everything that has been uh, transpired in my Christian life is based upon Jesus Christ and the love that Christ has displayed to me. And so the call to worship is based upon God's creation of man, God's response to man, and his salvation of mankind. Again, verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Now, there's just a correlation here that I I just want to point out. And again, a response to God, response to all that God has done. And they point out many times we see God's creation. And God's creation, natural theology, it points us to the realization of the existence of God. 
And we are to worship God because we see his might in the making of the mountains and the beauty of the sea and so on and so forth. These things that we appreciate, we can take for granted. My wife, we're driving down the road and I'm just driving down the road thinking of hitting a hole in one on the golf course, whatever I might be doing. But she'll be looking and she'll be, wow, look at the clouds. And you look at the clouds and you can just see how massive these things are. And you see the beauty of God's creation. And she says, maybe today's the day because the Bible tells us that he's going to be coming back in the clouds. And so God's creation. Well, again, in in 95 verse 1, it says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout to the rock of our salvation. And so if you go back and you examine Genesis at the uh, account of creation, then God said, let us Make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us worship God and let us worship God in response to when he said, let us make man in our own image. And again, I just want to look at that, that little correlation between creation and God who has not only created me, but God who has recreated me or has saved me. And again, that it would be an outburst of praise for these good things that he has done. And so the psalmist is calling us to worship God in response to, to God's goodness and, 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 and the, the grace that God has lavished upon us. Four ways we see here that we are to respond. First, we are to respond in singing. And you may sit there and say, well, I can't sing or I don't sing very well. God doesn't look at the voice so much. He looks through to the heart. And our singing is an expression, as I said earlier, of our heart. Singing is the emotional expression of a joyful human thought. I mean... I never had to teach any of my children to sing, but they would just sing. It was something that they were created. And again, we need to look at this landscape of music. What is the purpose of music? Music? Music was created by God. Music was created by God for the worship of God. And, and part of the reason that I know that, because, well, God's created everything, but another reason is, is because how the enemy attacks in that realm. Look how music today and and, and just about every obscene thing is contained in some of the current music of the day. And it's been like this for years past even. The devil has kind of hijacked that as well. That which is to be used to worship God has been used to worship the flesh of mankind as well. And again, we need to understand the purity of song. And again, my my thoughts as I, I... what are we told? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body living sacrifice, uh, holy and acceptable to him. Do not be conformed to the world, but transformed through the renewing of your mind. As my mind is renewed, and then those thoughts should be expressed in obedience, but also in song. Now, as I find a contentment and a joy in God, I sing, I sing out. Where else in your life? Take it out of the spiritual realm. Where else in your life do you find just this contentment and joyful time, just a time of relaxation, a time of comfort that causes you to sing out? Well, for me, get a little personal, but for me, it's in the shower. Just nothing like a nice warm shower, and you're in the shower, and you're just, you got good acoustics in there, and you're just singing out. Well, you know, it's kind of silly, but do you 
bring those that that knowledge in here not the shower but the knowledge in here of that joy of that contentment in god and the good things that he has done and allow that to be expressed through song again this is the place to do it remember gene kelly he was in love and he was full of joy and what was he doing he was singing in the rain in exodus chapter 15 verse 21 Israel makes it through the sea. They're, they were in Egyptian captivity, and they, they were unable to do anything for their, their condition, their situation. And then God, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, comes in and delivers them. And finally, they're allowed to leave, and as they're leaving, they come up to the sea, the Red Sea. And there's a mountain range on one side, and then all of a sudden they turn around and they look, and there's the Egyptian army coming after them from the other side. What are we going to do? And God, he splits the sea and he brings his people through. Then he closes the sea back up. And Moses' sister, Miriam, understands how close they came, but realizes that the mighty hand of God was with them, and the mighty hand of God had delivered them. In Exodus 15, 21, And Miriam, here she is as a worship leader, answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And so express this adoration and thanks to God through song is what she's saying. Secondly, as I alluded to earlier, we are to respond with shouting. We don't shout all that much at Calvary Chapel, Ontario. I've been to some churches, some more charismatic churches, that there's the, the shouting out of amen and all of that. You know, that can be a distraction as well. Could be people call, cause, calling attention unto themselves. But again... How about in response to what God has done? As we are singing those songs, it's just not a quiet singing unto yourself, but just a release, a release in shouting up these praises to your Lord. In Psalm 81, verse 1, to the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. And the idea is the things that I'm excited about I'm vocal. I'm vocal of those things. I let people know. I, I stood up and made vows before all of my family and friends on the day that I was married, that I married my wife. I'm making a commitment to this woman. And, and so the things that we're excited about are things we're vocal about. How excited are you about your relationship with God? And then we see in verse 2 that we are to respond with music. The NIV in verse 2 says, Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. The idea here is music is an accompanied by singing. And it's, again, it's the, the joining together of the two. There's something special about instruments and voices together. It lends that power to it. And it just, just, it's just an excitement. Biblical instruments, not that we are to confine ourselves to these, but we see many trumpets, harps, lyres, trampolines, trampolines, <laughs> tambourine, tambourines, or trampolines, but tambourines, strings, flutes, and cymbals. Hey, if the Bible was written today, there would be organs, there would be electric guitars, it's whatever it is that you pick up and use it to worship God. I'm not a guitar player, but I know how to play guitar, at least to a degree, although I haven't done it in quite a long time. But I just know, I learned 
chords and stuff before I was saved, but after I was saved and I would play and do worship songs, there was just a complete change about it. And even if I wasn't singing a song, but just to play the song and just to offer that as an expression of worship to God, again, there's something ordained about that and there's something special. Chapter 92, verses 1 through 3, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night on an instrument of ten strings, on the lute, on the harp, with harmonious sound. With harmonious sound. And then this last one, fourthly, is mostly implied, and it's implied, and i just kind of adding it in, it's implied throughout the Scriptures, We are to respond with words, simply mouthing words of adoration for our king. And the idea is, once again, as I've said so many times, when we say something out loud, we go on record. Have you been put on record, not recording record, but on record as worshiping God, uh, of truly singing it out? I mean, you can be in the congregation and you can worship God. You can do so quietly without a doubt. But as we shout these things out, we go on record. And not that you need to do it for me, not that you need to do it for God, he knows, but for your own benefit. For your own benefit, just to have that honor and that privilege to shout out your worship to the Lord. Angels even worship God that way. And again, nowhere in the Bible does it say that angels sing. It says that angels praise It says that angels worship, but it will always draw a distinction. It will say they worship God saying. I I really believe personally that singing is reserved for those whom grace has been lavished upon. And we've been given a greater privilege to sing these things out, I believe, than even the angels in heaven. Now, there may be people that have gone before. There's been great Christmas carols written about angels singing and all that, and I don't have a problem with all of that, but I just, real, I just believe that we have been given a greater privilege in the angels to worship God with our, our song, with singing out. Psalm 19, verse 14, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Secondly, we see why we worship, verses 3 through 7. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Some of these scriptures should be pretty familiar to you because we sing them. We sing them quite regularly, which would make sense because what did we see in the introduction of the book of Psalms? Psalms is God's songbook. It's a Hebrew songbook and how we are to worship him. As we go through the Psalms, we'll see these little verses here and there that songs have been built around. So why do we worship God? For basically... Well, I mean, no list is all-inclusive, no list is complete, but two main reasons that are listed here. First of all, because of who he is. In Revelation chapter 19, we get a picture of who he is. Verse 11, this is a picture of him at his second coming. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How you've got this awesome picture of God, of Jesus Christ, as, as he's coming back. And you see the might and the power. You see the magnitude of who he is, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And we're with him. He has chosen you to come with him during that time. If you're a born-again believer today, you will be present at this time, and you will be with him. And just that knowledge of God allowing us to even be in his presence of somebody so awesome and so many so powerful should once again cause us to well up in a spirit of worship. We worship him because of who he is. It's the reason that we study the Bible so that we would come to a greater depth of the knowledge of who he is. And worship is to be a response to that knowledge. I do not blindly worship anyone or anything. I come before God. And as I grow in the knowledge of the Lord, as I mature in my Christian life, my worship of him should grow and my worship of him should mature as well. Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Yahweh, again, the word Lord there is written in all capital letters. It's the tetragrammatron, Yahweh. Yahweh, the God who is, is the high God and even the high king over all powers. All those powers, all those powers and principalities that lurk behind the idols, the images, and the false gods of the heathen, our God is the high God. That's why when Moses said, you want me to go to Egypt, paraphrasing here, and they got all these gods, and they got the God of this and the God of that, the God of the Nile, the God of the sun, and all these, and all these names, so all these gods, and now you want me to go who should I say is sending me? Because they're going to want to know which God is it that is sending you. And, and what God res God's response was really tells the story. I am. And the reason that he is, or he said, tell him I am sent you, because all of those gods aren't. They're a figment of man's fleshly lust or his imagination or, or, or some kind of resource or whatever it might be. You tell him the God who truly is, is the God who sent you. And again, that was all about what was to follow, was God revealing himself, himself so that the people would understand who he is and the people would worship him. The second reason we worship him is because he is our shepherd. He's the one who watches out for us, who guides us. In John chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. When he says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying, I am the one and only good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. 
But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. And so he's the good shepherd. He's the one in the midst of wolves. He's the one in the midst of trials, in the midst of hardship. He's the one who guides over us, watches over us, and protects us. How much more should we worship him because of that? So the idea in these first two stanzas that we've been looking at, the first stanza is the worship of God. The worship of God is to be vocal, or the worship of God is to be passionate. Second stanza, the idea behind it is the worship of God is to be reverent. But then all of a sudden, thirdly, verses 7 through 11, we have a warning to worship. A warning to worship? There are those, there are scholars who believe that verses 7 through to the end of the chapter, verse 11, were two psalms that were joined together. But we're going to worship. We're going to worship somebody or something. So it would just make sense for there to be a warning to make sure that our worship is directed in the proper place. Verses 7 through 11, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work, For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation, or I was disgusted with that generation, and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Why a warning in this joyful exhortation? Because worship and obedience will always go hand in hand. You can't worship God and be disobedient to his call because you will never find contentment in what God has called you to do and in your relationship with God if you are not obedient to that call. It's when we're obedient to that call that we find rest, contentment, and then we're able to truly worship him. We're able to truly come before him. And so... Some have looked at these verses and why are they talking about back then? But verse 8 is really current. Do not harden your hearts. And that's what he's telling us here today. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the daily rebellion, when, as the Jews did in the wilderness. Because they paid the price for it, they suffered for it. They had 38 years in the wilderness, 40 if you counted the time before Mount Sinai. All that time in the wilderness that was so unnecessary let's not go to the wilderness. Let's not spend any, any more time in the wilderness than is necessary. Because if you remember the wilderness, well, that was the time just before the promised land. Promised land's not heaven. Promised land, that's the blessed Christian life. It's a picture of the blessed Christian life because as they entered into the promised land, there was still sin and there were still battles to fight, which does not equate to heaven. But nonetheless, this was the place that God was going to bring them and they were going to have the peace of God that surpasses understanding. That Israel was to be a nation that would truly worship God and their worship would be a light to the Gentiles. But what did they do? They hardened their heart against God. They were a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked people, that term is equated to a donkey that you're trying to lead. 
you have him on a leash or a bridle or whatever, and you're trying to pull him, but he's stiff-necked and he fights against you. Don't be stiff-necked. Be open to the leading of the Lord. Worship the Lord. Find contentment in the Lord. And as we do, our lives, our lives will be filled. True worship does not start at the opening of your mouth, but the opening of your ears and the penetration of your heart. We must first hear God's word, then obey God's word, then we will be effective instruments able to worship God in all of his glory, all of his power, and all of his might. In John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, the woman of the well, Jesus told this woman, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, and so this is what Jesus says that true worship is, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now when he says worship in spirit, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Now I know the Holy Spirit directs us, the Holy Spirit directs us in our worship, and we need the Holy Spirit in our worship. There's no doubt about that, but that's not what is being said here. Matter of fact, the translators recognize that because spirit, the S, is lowercase. If they recognize it as Holy Spirit, they would have made it an uppercase S. But what has God done? When you were dead, you, when you were unsaved, you were spiritually dead, but we're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that he has caused you to come alive. What did he cause to come alive? Your spirit. The spirit is the part of you that communes with God. And our worship is through that portion of us that God has caused, caused to become alive at salvation. It's that portion that we worship with the Lord, that we commune with God in an intimate way. In spirit, and in truth, not according to the flesh. Now, truth, that word opens the door for, well, we're told that Jesus is the truth. We're told that the word is truth, and we are told that the spirit is truth. And so there's our Christian experience, and there's the spirit, that portion of us that communes with God. So that tells me that worship is to be intimate. Worship is to be intimate. Worship is to be encompassing. And worship, worship is to be that which we are to spend our time doing, not doing it haphazardly, but doing all with our heart and our soul and our might. That as we worship the Lord, we would first recognize what we are doing. We would never take worship for granted again. And we, there would be a pouring out or an emptying of ourselves as we come before the Lord in these times. Father, once more, we just thank you, God, for your good word your good word that directs us and leads us. And Father, how much more so does it do so in this area of worship, this thing that we do all the time? We do at service, we do so wherever it is that we do. But Lord, every once in a while, we have the opportunity to revisit it, to dissect it. And I pray, Father, if there's been any area where our worship isn't all that it can be, I pray through your word tonight, God, that you would build this back up. I even pray for this last song, God, that we would shout it out, that we would worship you, and that, Father, we would just rejoice in this time of obedience, in this time of adoration for our holy God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?